William, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule um, to, uh, to jump on here and, uh, and talk shop with me. Um, for those that maybe don't know who you are or haven't heard of you, um, why don't you just give yourself a little bit of uh, an introduction and uh, show the back, uh, talk through your background. Sure. Um, although it's a not very busy schedule at the moment, given, <laughs> given everything that's going on. Um, so that dates this podcast immediately. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm strength and conditioning coach or, or um, performance coach based down in Chelmsford in Essex. And I own Powering Through Performance uh, Center down there. Um, I work with an array of sports, um, you know, novel sports, I've got to add to that, uh, uh, from superbike riding to, to golf, to MMA, to jiu-jitsu, uh, a lot of combat sports, um, and more recently, a local rugby team. Um, that's my first real foray into field sport. And then also, uh, I work as a strength and conditioning consultant with the um, PGA European Tour, uh, with the European Tour Performance Institute. Um, and that means I get to travel all over Europe um, and uh, sometimes out to the Middle East, uh, working with uh, you know, professional golfers, um, from guys who are well-established on the tour to guys who are just coming up from Challenge Tour. And, uh, you know, and then I work with some of the amateur guys I work with a few regional golf kids all the way down to our junior golf SNC uh, sessions that we run at the gym. So it's, you know, pretty varied, um, you know, pretty varied uh, sort of athletes I work with, although I'm in a unique position of not working with many athletes who need to run fast. So keep that in mind when it comes to asking me questions today. <laughs> so you mentioned there, obviously, and it is a very kind of, you are like literally hitting the nail on the head, novel sports. Like some of the sports I've, I've never worked with, and I can't imagine a lot of other people have as well. Um, but you can definitely tell you, I think for some of the listeners, you can definitely take a lot of things from working with those sports. And then like from kind of following you on social media for a while now, um, like reading some of your articles and simply faster. Um, I think you've came up with like to use the word again, a novel approach almost, um, to, to strength conditioning, working with your, your MMA fighters and even with your golfers. Yeah. Um, so like my first question really is just to maybe not even a question, but can you, can you get into your your compressed triphasic model. That's something that I've been curious because obviously Carl Dietz kind of brought out his triphasic training and then people run a lot of different variations of that. Um, do you mind just getting into how that compressed uh, version works within the athletes that you work with? Yeah, so um, big advocate of, of the triphasic system. Um, I've been using isometrics and eccentrics um, kind of as a novel dosing sort of for, for regular training and basically what triphasic gave us was a way to, to systematize that and people sometimes complain that oh this is nothing new this is nothing new what it does is it systematizes um you know the usage of, of, of intensive eccentric isometric but not just that there's also your your oscillatory rapid contract relax type work in there as well so it's not just eccentrics and isometrics people forget that and people get very hung up on the fact that it is a sort of block sequence system. Um, I, I try and uh, basically suggest that what's important with triphasic is, is the, the application of stress uh, in, a, in a systemic, uh, systematic fashion. I'm, I like alliteration, so um, it works, and it works fabulously well for that. But um, obviously Cal and uh, Matt Van Dyke built that model around um, the college sports cycle. Um, because obviously that's that's what they work with and um, works fabulously well with them. Uh, long predictable seasons 
Um, and so it's easy to fit in a, a sort of long, lengthy block sequence system. I think that if you run the whole method from start to finish, I think it's 20 weeks. So, you know, and that's, that's pretty much, you know, half a year for a lot of these athletes. So what I found with the population I work with, uh, MMA fighters, combat athletes, very receptive to eccentric, isometric type work, very, very useful for their sports because they're very collision dominant sports. So, um, you know, that structure, that ability to absorb force, all very, very useful for those athletes. But MMA athletes generally don't have that same uh, yearly structure. So I had to find a way to better adapt the methods for my needs, which is where um, I started using a more compressed method, which is something Cal suggested. Um, but I sort of grabbed it with both hands and, and ran with it and, and sort of implemented it into a, a, a sort of a, a, a short sequence system of, of, of running it in a very compressed fashion. Um, it takes us about eight weeks to run the whole thing if you, if you, if you run it properly. Um, and then what I suggest is, is basically running a secular uh, sort of system of, of, of mixing, mixing up GPP and SPP over until you get a fight date. Then once you get your fight date, most of the time, that means you've got like maybe eight, 12 weeks and then you fight. So we basically keep people within this sort of this, this secular um, uh, general training phase of, of applying clever isometrics and eccentrics, working then on power and speed work and then going back to it again. And we're not talking like a ton of dosing, just enough to, to, to keep that training residual, all the benefits of super maximal work um, in the system and uh, run that sort of fairly regularly with a lot of the guys. And um, while I've been doing it for a while, you know, other people have grabbed onto triphasic, but a lot of people haven't been implementing the super maximal stuff that Cal suggests. And I think it's partly because of the worry of, of applying something so intensive, uh, potentially sort of risky, I guess, is, is part of the reason why people are afraid of, of, of applying that type of method. And um, if uh, I can share my screen, um, so, so let's quick shift that. And what generally we're looking at, um, if I throw that up. So, um, go back one. So, um, basically, what we're looking at, you see at the top here. Um, you know, our general camp looks like this. So you've got your 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 non-camp uh, GPP, which for most fighters is just training. They'll do circuits, they'll do runs, they'll do um, stuff like that. And then generally they'll get a fight. The usual amount of time is like 12 weeks. And then what happens, you get into the whole fight camp situation. So it's okay, now I do 12 weeks, highly intensive work, usually one week off and then I'll fight. So in reality, you've maybe got 11 weeks. and Fighters try and condense a lot into this period of time, um, and generally, you know, this is this is what at least at the top here is what what it looks like. So they'll they'll do their you know their non-camp GPP. This is their regular strength training, usually quite sub-maximal, um, you know, depending on what coach they've got. And then they'll do eight weeks of sort of strength work geared towards the sport. So uh, that could be that could be anything ranging from from you know conventional weight training to sort of special methods. So uh, virtual work is quite popular for fighters. Um, you know, uh, you'll see a lot of floor pressing, hip thrusting, that type of stuff. And then usually, sort of in the, in the latter four weeks, there'll be a big focus on power, speed work. And generally, fighters will run this sort of sequence over and over and over again. Uh, but usually, what they're missing is a lot of qualitative strength 
usually they focus far too much. So the whole thing, that, the whole vein that runs through this whole 12 week camp process is uh, the overemphasis on conditioning, in my opinion. So, um, and you'll see some coaches have built careers sorry, around novel conditioning methods uh, to try and get fighters fit. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, I love Joel Jamison's material, but obviously he's, he's pushing a conditioning program uh, and it, conditioning is very, very important. A lot of fighters get it very wrong. Um, but I do feel that, that um, you know, one of the mistakes fighters do make is they overemphasize a lot of glycolytic conditioning. Yep. So they'll do, they'll do far too much conditioning in that weird middle ground of, of it just being gassy, exhaustive, and not particularly productive and not congruent to fighting at all. And they'll start doing this at 12 weeks out quite often. Uh, it's just sort of part of the culture of the sport. It's getting better now. Um, but it, you know, it was a bit of a problem for, for a long time. So basically what I'm saying is that conventional MMA peaking approach is linear for a start. Um, it quite often doesn't address strength. And then, uh, you know, it's very conditioning dominated. And the other thing that's a big problem is it's not objective. Now what the UFCPI did is they come up with a t slew of tests that fighters can do to be objective about their training. Um, that document is freely available. You can get a hold of it. And it has a slew of objective tests you can do to compare your fighters to um, some of the best fighters in the world. So you get an idea of some of the numbers are a bit, you know, some of them are a bit odd, but uh, because they're working with a small sample size, there's only 180 odd UFC fighters and I don't think they sampled them all. Um, so um, then what I'm proposing is that what we want when fighters aren't in camp, they want some sort of compressed intensive stimulus, mm -hmm. something that has long residuals so that when they've done it, that carries them through the camp. And what we need is a, sort of a more cyclical uh, mosaic approach. So the, the program is highly adaptable. So if you need to shove something off, the fight's announced, you've only got eight weeks, you can shove it off because you've spent enough time cyclically introducing um, sort of intensive strength work. Um, you know, so you want this sort of cyclical approach as opposed to just repeat linear sprints, which is what everybody does and the, most people do at the moment. So if you can build up a system of, of just cyclical GPP, you know, strength, focus, power, focus, strength, focus, power, focus, um, like we've got here. So, you know, I'm suggesting four to six weeks of GPP, compressed, compressed intensive stimulus, you know, high force, high velocity, followed then by six weeks of SPP, power, speed work. So that's, um, you know, after 12 weeks, 10 weeks of just this cyclical stuff, you know, what do you do between fights? And it's like just doing this over and over. What a lot of guys do is they'll let their training sort of fall by the wayside. Suddenly it's fight week is, you know, they've got a fight date and then suddenly they spend 12 weeks trying to jam so much into that space and time and the results are, are, are you know, less than ideal. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what I'm suggesting here is that there's this, this crossover. So you do spend four to six weeks doing high force, low velocity stuff. It doesn't have to be compressed, super maximal work. That's just what I prefer. And then you spend six weeks of doing high force, high velocity work uh, and keep that kind of ticking over because quite often a lot of fighters don't know when they'll be fighting next. Um, and the other thing is a lot of them keep training very, very regularly. So you have to maintain a certain level of robustness um, because they're still, you know, if they're going to get hurt, it'll probably be in training. You know, if they get hurt in a fight, it's usually a concussion. So that tells you, um, you know, the, the MSK issues aren't happening in fights. Those are happening in training. So you need to maintain a certain level of strength to deal with that, that stress. So, you know, um, once you get that fight date, then you switch to that acute, you know, sports specific training. 
to prepare the you know, athlete for, for competition. Everything's high velocity. Conditioning should be congruent to what you're trying to achieve. And that's what I'm suggesting with this uh, you know, compressed supermaximal method. And then within that then, um, especially potentially in that, like the, the very first phase, are you using a lot of kind of density training and things like that? And I, I've seen on your, your social media, obviously you're, you're a fan of, um, yeah, I suppose it is, it's density training, but with like mouth taped essentially. So doing one rep bench press, walking across to one rep uh, trap by deadlift, just to help and try and improve the um, like sensitivity to, to carbon dioxide. And is yeah. that something that you're kind of introducing early on for your fighters? And when, when you first introduced it, if, if that was what you did, how did your, your kind of fighters react to that? So um, funny enough, the, the, the reaction by, from the fighters was very positive. A lot of them said it feels like what happens when you're, on the, you're underneath someone and they're trying to you know, stop you from, from breathing, you know, and they're giving you a hard time. You focus on that controlled nasal breathing and suddenly... Um, you know, concentration improves, relaxation comes into it. You know, I dislike the term, but parasympathetic tone, for lack of a better term, uh, sort of becomes more predominant. Obviously, you're not going to completely drop out of that, you know, sympathetic state, but you're going to be able to be a little bit more relaxed, you know, and, and people find it very, very useful in that regard. Um, and we'll run that generally uh, if they've just come off a fight. Um, and we'll run that sort of post fight. Um, and as soon as they come back into the gym, because quite often they'll take a couple of weeks off after a fight. Then we'll run that, that, that GPP cycle, uh, with the density type work. Um, you know, either aerobic, the, the system Cal suggests is based off his system. So, uh, quite often I'll do, um, you know, the aerobic work, lactate oriented work, and then we'll do some sort of tendon dominant work for a couple of weeks. Um, sometimes we'll skip the aerobic stuff entirely because a lot of them have high levels of aerobic fitness. It's not a problem. So we'll jump straight to the lactate based stuff and then the isometric based stuff. Um, and sometimes we won't do the isometric based stuff. We'll just do the aerobic and lactate based stuff. So it kind of depends on what the athlete wants as well. Some of them don't like doing the, 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 the 90% tendon based stuff, for instance. Um, and if I've not got their buy-in, I won't run the method with them. Um, you know, and uh, but the aerobic mouth tape stuff. The other thing is the novelty of taping the mouth as well. Some guys just just like the 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 the, the change up, you know. So that works pretty well as well. For the first two minutes, you panic. You think you're gonna you think you're gonna suffocate, but then suddenly you remember that you can breathe through your nose, and you can get into a rhythm, and then you settle, um, you know. But even when I'm taking a break from it, and I go back to it. I take my mouth. That first two minutes is hellish because you you kind of forget how to to breathe through your nose, you know, um, and you know, most endurance athletes will scoff because most of the time they focus on nasal, nasal breathing anyway. They're like, what do you mean nasal breathing? Well, you know, when I'm on a bike or on a run, I, I try and focus on breathing through my nose all the time. The thing is, you're not trying to fight somebody. You know, the, the sympathetic tone they're achieving is way higher than what you're getting out of your, your run. So, you know, you fall into traits like, you know, um, clenching, you know, mouth breathing, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, and we, the biggest thing we see with that method is a big drop in resting heart rate. Of all the things I've, I've seen, we measure pre-post, the biggest change is, is the, the change in resting heart rate it, uh, when we start to when we finish it. And we can get pretty, pretty big drops in, in, in their beats per minute. Um, you know, we've had guys running this type of stuff now uh, during the lockdown period because it, it's simple to do. It feels intensive, but it's not going to destroy you. You know, so we've been getting guys, guys running that and uh, a lot of them have been enjoying it. Yeah, I think definitely at the moment, obviously, even with if you can't lift heavy, 
if you're doing kind of Carl's like 3D contralateral circuits or whatever, that's mm -hmm, a great, mm -hmm. great time to, to nasal and uh, na emphasize nasal breathing, things like yeah. that. Just do the small things or the simple things really well. And you can get quite a lot of bang for your buck for it uh, from my experience. So I've had some of the guys, some of the fighters doing um, uh, like quadruped work, the Andy Ryland's bear stuff, mouth yeah. taste. And, and they've, they've, some of them have really enjoyed that too. So there are different, lots of different ways you can implement it. It doesn't necessarily have to be a density circuit or whatever. Yeah, for sure. So you actually mentioned that. So you went into that you went into like a lactate uh, dominant phase. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you incorporate your lactate training? Is that something that you might do before you just go into a peaking phase, or where does that typically fall within the within the program? Yeah, so that's generally that's, that's general general preparatory. So it's to help them, uh, you know, help you deal with with local muscular fatigue is the main aim. People really get hung up on lactate conditioning because of the word it's it's cow's word it's not mine we could maybe find a different word you would have called it local muscular endurance training that's a mouthful but um that's basically what you're you're you're, you're teaching athletes to tolerate is, is local muscular fatigue so if you were to call it perhaps strength endurance that might be a more appropriate term so you know i remember one guy came at me and was like well are you doing lactate testing it's like no i'm not doing lactate <sighs> testing it's, you know that's 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 not the idea you're getting hung up the guy happened to be a physiologist so that explains why you know, he, he wasn't very happy with me, but it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's the sentiment. It's it, people get hung up on that. But so we'll, we'll, we'll run that. And basically it's helped deal with local muscular fatigue. Um, and then when we move into the, to the, to the subsequent cycles, we also see a drop in resting heart rate um, from that too. So it must have some sort of um, peripheral second order effect there of, of, of help of still being a conditioning method. So it's still having an effect on the pulmonary system. Um, so uh, yeah, we'll, and we'll, we still see improvement from that. And then what we see is like, you know, especially your bigger guys who perhaps struggle with their workout sometimes, you run a lactate GPP-based cycle and they're able to better tolerate that local muscular fatigue. Um, and that's what we find. So remember that, you know, the idea here is it's still very, very general. Um, you know, people get very hung up on, on you know, the semantics of it. But the idea is it's just a GPP cycle. You know, it's, it's, you know, you can chop it and change it and modify it however you see fit. This is just the way the way I do it. Okay. And then to so going back to your like, super maximal method, mm -hmm. what um, you mentioned, obviously going through the different, like the eccentric isometric phases, what uh, typical uh, ice, like adaptation, sorry, are you looking for? Do you get in, because you're going super maximal, are we getting more adaptations over a short period of time? Like, is there any difference with going super maximal versus just kind of 80 to 90%? Yeah. So the, uh, the argument is this, is that you're only really achieving proper eccentric contractions, um, quality of eccentric contractions at 90% plus loading. Obviously, you've got rapid eccentric, uh, but here we're looking at sort of slow eccentric, and we still want that that um, uh, mechanical uh, loading, that that separation of the, the, the filaments and and um, you know all that stuff that excites uh, you know muscle physiologists. Um, so we're looking at at uh, basically trying to, to load the system as as heavy as possible so if we we hop to this here we can see obviously you know you have uh, a whole most people focus on on kind of from that red line red line down um and worry primarily about concentric strength so there's a whole section uh of potential strength that we're not uh tapping into and um you know the beauty of eccentric contraction i guess is that it's um, enormously low tolerance. 
um, and it's you know physiologically different from isometrics and concentrics, which is a you know important distinction to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's there's a change in in um, you know motor unit recruitment. Um, you know, uh, the motor pool is less activated, and um, you know the act- activation then is of, of, of fewer fibers. Uh, I think it was Matt Van Dyke. Um, you know, it means that. Um, you know, the fewer uh, myosin actin attachment sites lead to increased stress on the ones that are working. So that increased stress then leads to, you know, further greater adaptation. That tissue damage then requires greater healing process. And, and uh, you know, it's um, stuff that, again, excites muscle physiologists an awful lot. Um, you know, and uh, it's the systemic stress, I guess, is the key thing here. And, you know, because, um, you know, it's so much more stressful than submaximal eccentrics, you know, which we know there are a ton of benefits of, you know, uh, significant cr- increases in, in, in type two fiber, cross-sectional area, all this type of stuff. You know, you can read a laundry list. There's tons of research on, on the benefits of eccentrics. Um, so we know that, you know, the other beauty is that I guess eccentrics are, are comparably low energetic costs. Um, you know, despite there's a lot of force being generated, um, you know, so you can do, you know, if you're dosing it cleverly, you can do quite a few sets, you know, um, single reps, obviously, you're not going to, you're not going to give people multiple reps after one rep, they're done, you know, of, of seven to 10 seconds, that type of thing. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's just exploiting the potential of, of, of greater force production. And I think that's, that's the key thing to keep in mind, you know, um, you know, the only other, I guess, the biggest negative that people will think of will be the, just the soreness. You know, it generates a, a lot of soreness. And if you're just ready for that, and, um, you know, if you're ready for that soreness, you have your other methods in the place, foam rolling, compression, um, sauna, you know, whatever, whatever else you need, you know, um, you can mitigate that to some extent. But, you know, what I'm suggesting now, you know, is at a point where we're doing, say, um, one rep, um, doing super maximal eccentric with anywhere from, I don't know, 105 to 120%, we'll do that. Uh, and then we'll um, do the rest of the workout as per normal. So you then do all your rest, other sets submaximally. So you're dosing with that one rep of super maximal work. And because you're doing it that way, you can apply it more frequently over the course of a year rather than doing, say, because once you've done it once, once you've got, say, one heavy supermaximal cycle under your belt, subsequent attempts at doing it are, are, are easier, mainly because the athlete sort of mentally knows what's happening and it's easier to do from that regard. But I think, um, you know, there's, I, I, I can't really explain it, but um, there's definitely a tolerance that's built so that when you repeat it, it's not as bad as it was the first time you ever did it. Yeah. So, so you're dosing um, super, in super small volumes then in as small as one rep. Yeah, so this is this is where people get get kind of hung up. They think I'm doing a ton of work with it, and I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm I'm dosing single reps, sort of semi semi regularly, maybe every eight weeks, maybe you know every six weeks, um, and just dosing it. Sort of, it's not micro dosing. That's the wrong word. Um, you know, let's call it sort of you know quasi infrequent dosing. I don't know if you want to give it a name than that, but uh, you know, um, yeah, it's it's. It's just um, dosing it responsibly and then in a way the athlete understands, you know, and then you've got the isometrics as well, you know, um, which is, which is an, sort of another thing you can focus on. With the isometrics, are you, are you still, are you following kind of 
Carl's advice there in terms of pulling yourself down quickly, smashing the brakes on and then just holding? You're, try, you you're, you're trying to with super maximal loading. Um, it's, it can be done. Uh, again, athlete confidence is a big, a big part. That's where the hand support really, really helps. Um, it's no less grueling than the eccentric, um, but it's different. It feels different. Um, I'd say it's less intense, uh, but you know, there's, there's a lot going on systemically. Um, something that's encouraged is to keep breathing. So don't, don't, don't brace with a big breath, keep breathing while you hold the position, um, which initially feels very, very strange. If you've always taught that Valsalva, you know, uh, you're going from that to trying to have them sort of either not a forced breath, but having them breathe while they're, while they're holding the position, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tricky. And obviously, as we know, with, with isometrics, you know, you're getting a, a, a really high firing rate. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's not fun uh, because you feel like you're going to get crushed. Um, but once you've done it a couple of times, you kind of get used to it. And then, um, you know, it, it, it just, um, it stresses the athlete in a way that we find also, you know, gets a, a, a bunch of carryover, particularly sort of combat athletes, athletes that require quasi isometric positions. They feel that because they can handle that that super maximum isometric load, maintaining isometric positions then in the sport becomes a lot e lot easier. But again, that's kind of anecdotal. But um, you know, the idea again is is outsized outsized stresses causing um, an outsized rebound in favorable qualities. You know, uh -huh. and then does that um, two kind of questions here? Using that one rep as part of your kind of super maximal protocol. Um, at the start of the session, do you find that primes the rest of the session? If you're going to yes. you're going to run, would you typically run? Let's say you're in an eccentric run, <laughs> you've hit one super maximal rep at 110. percent mm -hmm. Would you then go into three by three at 82? percent Yeah, something something like that. So you might come come down and do doubles at 80. percent mm -hmm. um, You know, triples uh, that type that type of thing. Um, and that's generally how we're running it. Uh, is 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 like that. We'll do we'll do multiple sets as well for super maximal, depending on the athlete's requirements. Mm -hmm. uh, so if they're in a very strength dominant position, um, you know. So let's say if they're a heavyweight fighter, we might do more. Okay. You know, whereas if they're perhaps say front row in rugby, I'd suggest doing more. You know, um, it depends on how strength dominant they are. If they were a thrower or something, you might want to do more. Um, it 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 really depends, and it does depend on whether they've run it in the past. Uh, there's some research showing that the, the residual for super maximum work is really long. Um, and, you know, if you're doing it sort of low dose semi-frequently, you can kick that can of um, uh, residuals sort of down the road, you know, from, from a strength training standpoint. So it's, it's worth uh, considering, you know, from that approach. Um, so it really depends on the athlete who is in front of you. And do you find, you mentioned the use of the hand supported kind of, variations that you use is that something that, that you find helps with the super maximum methods i know i've personally kind of tried it with the hand supported tried it without um and i've also actually used it on like a, a belt squat machine um which is my my personal favorite but do you find that the athletes like the use of the hand supported over just a regular barbell um so i generally find the binds much better <laughs> with the hand support because um i remember watching some of the original videos of i think some bob sledders doing um doing super maximal back squats uh with like four spotters five spotters or something and just thinking the whole thing just looks so precarious 
absolutely bloody terrifying. And, um, you know, it makes sense to hand support it, um, which is where people get, again, people get hung up on the execution of a hand supported movement. They think it's all hands and no legs. And it's like, even if there is some contribution from the hands, you know, let's say a 10, 20% contribution with the hands, that's still 80% of heavy, you know, is still, is still heavy. So, and people get, people get hung up on, 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 on the hand support, um, you know, with those movements. So it's, it's, it's um, definitely worth, worth the buy-in. Obviously I break up athletes down to whether their sport has a sort of bilateral or unilateral dominant component. Um, with the fighters, I'll mix it up. Um, but other sports I'll choose based on that. So for golf, for instance, if we're going to do a super maximal squat, we'll keep a bilateral stance. Whereas perhaps if they play a different sport, we'll do a hand supported split squat or, or whatever um, and, and apply it that way. And then, so we've mentioned obviously working the eccentric isometric phase. Do you think there's potentially too much focus within the field, maybe just always emphasizing like the concentric outputs and not necessarily taking time to, to look at the different tissue adaptations that we can get from the eccentric and the isometric phases? I think that's, that's entirely why uh, triphasic training found its, found its niche uh, is entirely because of that, that taking that concept. People knew about isometrics, they knew about eccentrics, but again, they were never really systematized in a, in a sense that made, in a way that made sense. So, um, you know, I guess what Cal did was laid out a method that, that can be applied by almost anyone submaximally or supermaximally, um, you know, um, you're looking for that, that sort of, that tissue adaptation that can't be found with concentrics. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, why it seems to work so well for a lot of people. And a lot of people seem to find new PRs, um, you know, wherever it may be, because of the number of stimulus, their structure's never been challenged in a way like that before. You know, so they're going to find some adaptation, mm -hmm. um, you know, particularly if it's novel. And, and I think that's the beauty of it. That's why a lot of people have a lot of initial, initial success with the submaximal uh, work because it's a novel stimulus. The body's not used to it. Suddenly they, they see, uh, you know, uh, some, I guess, second benefits from, from the fact they've applied this novel stimulus and, and, and it pushes it forward to a lot of change, you know, and that's, that's, the, that's the beauty of it, you know, because there is so much of a focus on concentric work. Mm -hmm. um you know this this novel stimulus does, i'm not saying it works for everybody but for, for most of the athletes i've worked with it's always he help them find an extra gear let's put it that way yeah no for sure it's, i think it's a it's a great to be able to kind of not necessarily using the term microdose but i'm going to use it anyway just to kind of drop it in there every now and again uh, yeah. athletes seem to seem to like it and it, it definitely helps i think carry over to the sport and if you look at the way cal presents it in terms of kind of narrowing the v i think it definitely helps helps do that um just moving on you mentioned obviously going into the peaking phase do you mind just explaining kind of what that looks like yeah sure so um what i'll do is i'll run through um just on how we organize this so mm -hmm. let's say here's a two-day sample uh, of the program and we'll have um you know they'll do a super maximal lift one day super maximal lift the other day french contrast or something like this uh push pull hip hinge that type of stuff and that'll take us through uh, super maximal eccentric isometric blocks um, and I'm suggesting that they do either singles or clusters for, for seven or ten seconds per rep uh, then we pair that with French contrast so we're always keeping a handle on on rapid force production mm -hmm. even if our main focus is still on 
um, you know, eccentrics and isometrics. So we keep that French contrast in there, uh, you know, as well. Because if you were to just do super maximal eccentrics all the time, uh, you, you, you know, you, you would uh, end up like a, a sort of lumbering stiff and, and not very explosive at all, which is why I think some people who don't run either uh, concentric work immediately afterwards or don't want run concurrent concentric work um, struggle with, with doing lots of eccentrics. Um, you might remember the classic GVT program, um, uh, German volume training, which is just all eccentrics. And I've known people who've, who've done that and run that whole program and then they come away, I don't remember how many weeks long the program is, and then they try and go in to do something explosive and they're moving like a you know piece of wood. And they're like, what's, I can't understand, what's wrong? It's like, yeah, you've gained a bunch of mass, you've gained a ton of eccentric strength, but you've completely abandoned your ability to contract quickly. So, you know, you're moving around like you've got a rod up your ass, you know. <laughs> so this is why you have to keep the, con con you know, the, the concurrent sort of ballistic type explosive work in there as well while you're running the super maximal stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's important. So, um, so just, just before you, sorry, just before you move sure. on, do you think that is potentially misunderstood? Because obviously... Cal runs it as a block system. Yeah. But do you think a lot of people misinterpret that and say, okay, we're only going to do eccentrics or isometrics and we're not going to do, we're not going to keep kind of, like you say, running it concurrently or use a vertical integration approach where we can keep more quality spinning, but just at a slightly slower rate while we emphasize kind of the main dish? No, that's, that's spot on. And that's, that's where people get, get hung up, I think, especially if you, if you run it very linearly and Cal, you know, he outlines that you should apply eccentrics to stuff you think is appropriate. In some of his sample programs, he applies eccentrics to almost everything. I think people do the same thing. And they then apply eccentrics to every single movement in the, in the program. And they wind up suffering with exactly that problem of just feeling very stiff, very tight. Um, their rate of force development falls through the floor because all they've been doing is eccentric, and eccentric work. They've not been paying respect to that rapid concentric work, you know, that ultimately is, is sport, but you need, a, you need that foundation of, of force absorption. Um, and yeah, they, they, they kind of get the wrong end of the stick and just think, um, you know, the eccentrics are divorced from everything else, which they're not. It's all part of a, of a you know, integrated system, um, you know, which is important. So that vertical integration is, you know, spot on. So you can run, you can run the eccentric or isometric work as your lead thing and then just keep everything submax. You don't have to do it, um, you know, the other way about. So where the whole thing is all, all eccentric based. So um, yeah, this is just another variation of, of uh, you know, doing submax work one day, sort of a high intensity, and then doing supermax the, the first day. So that's another way of doing it. Um, you know, this is a three-day potentially submax at the start of the week, and then two supermax more sessions uh, towards the end of the week. And there are lots of different ways you can chop that up. Um, you know, but your lead movement is always supermaximal. Um, you know, even if it is just one rep, two reps, whatever, you know, here I'm suggesting four. So it's the more classic way that Cal kind of sets out. Um, and then, uh, let's see if I can find, I can't find the peaking work. I don't think I included it in this part, but, um, the peaking work, basically what we look at is usually, um, 55% sort of loading. Um, we do a lot of, uh, um, uh, band, band resisted, um, uh, trap bar jumps. Uh, a lot of oscillatory and more recently the sort of range trimetric stuff um, of rapid contract relax. Uh, it works well with the fighters uh, because I stopped doing conventional plyometrics with my MMA guys because a um, couple of reasons. MMA guys quite often unshod 
And when they produce force in the sport, it's a stick and explode type action. So they have to root themselves before they produce force. Um, it's not a pop. It's not a plyometric pop. So I see a lot of fighters doing a lot of plyometrics. And I'm like, that's all well and good, but that's not how they produce force when they're hitting someone. That's not how they produce force when they're driving into somebody. That's not how they produce force when they're throwing somebody. It's all a sort of slightly slower concentric action. So they'll stick and then they'll perform the movement. It's not a, it's not a plyometric pop. They're not relying on that spring complex, which is also why when I tested RSI with my fighters, I found that they were very inconsistent. Um, and even though UFC PI does measure their RSI, I found that even some of my most explosive fighters, the guys who punched hardest and could explode on the mats, I got them in to test their RSI and the numbers were all over the place. So they're not able to make particularly great use of that, um, you know, that, that stretch mechanism. So I stopped worrying about that as a plyometric uh, application. So I stopped doing that type of stuff. So if you go back, if we go to, um, I think I've got, if I spin through these real quick, got a video of uh, Charlie and some of the super maximal stuff. Oh, it's jumped out. Um, give me a second. So uh, I've got a video here of Charlie. There we go. Oh no. What can you see on your screen at the moment? So I've jumped I out. just got I just got a picture of um, of yeah, <laughs> a lot of weight. <laughs> yeah, so that's let's see if we can. Uh, so we moved over to the trap bar now. Yeah. So. So basically what we'll do is we'll do um, either a range trimetric. So these are, these are examples, obviously, of super maximal lifting. I mm -hmm. um, don't know why, but it keeps wanting to hop out. So here we go. Uh, can you see Charlie stood on a, on a, on a plate? Yep. Uh, yeah. So I'll try play this. I don't know how it will come across. So we'll start doing, um, you know, explosive, uh, you know, ground reaction force drills where we'll force the eccentric action. So I'll push him mm -hmm. off the plate. And then he's, he's trying to push off the floor hard and then throw a strike. So we'll do work like this. So the ground reaction force time is slow down because he has to absorb the force. Um, so just some jammer pushes there. So if I go back to the, to the video, so I'm, I'm, I'm pushing him off the plate. What we're doing is we're exaggerating that ground contact time. So I'm push it, pushing him off. I don't know if you can see that. So yep. push him off you know, we're increasing the amount of time it takes him to stick, then he has to try and explode back off the floor as fast as he can. So we're not interested in the, in the, in the, in the spring mechanism. We're interested in him absorbing and then producing force as rapidly as he can. So we're, we're not hanging out on that, that um, elasticity. Yeah, so um, reloading you know, the tissue itself and actually it, that eccentric loading essentially, trying to narrow almost a multization phase. Yeah, that's, ex that's exactly right. So. Um, and then he's throwing that, that strike off that. So we'll do work like this as part of our peaking. Um, and uh, it's easy for me to push Charlie off that plate because he's, he's one of the few male, he's a, one of the few male straw weights in the country. So, uh, yeah, he fights at 56 kilos. So he's only, a, he's only a small guy, but um, we'll do work like that. We'll do some range trimetric work as well, um, which is where we'll have him, have him uh, banded up to an anchor, usually underneath him and we'll, focus on that very rapid contract relax on off on off on off looks like they're humping the air it, it go, falls in the category of, of looks stupid does good um so they'll they'll we'll have them hunt. there's a couple of videos on my instagram of, of, of guys doing that um you know nothing recent unfortunately because obviously i've not been training anyone but 
we've got some 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 footage of Charlie doing stuff like that and some of the other guys doing stuff like that. And some of the photos, though, they don't like it. So if, if they're not buying into it, we won't do it. So we'll okay. do conventional sort of submax explosive type work, regular medal, ball throws, push presses, um, you know, more sort of ordinary strength type work. So, you know, it is tailored to the individual. It's not like I get them to do this. You know, if they don't want to do it, we don't do it with them. So with that reflexive trimester, yes, trimetric. So I've actually played around with it a bit myself. Um, and am I right in thinking, or what are you trying to get here? Because obviously traditional plyometrics utilizing stretch shortening cycle, a lot of the connective mm -hmm. tissue, especially around the ankle complex. Yep. Um, with the, the trimetric method, from what I've seen, you're in a split squat position. And I think Carl, right, correct me as I go along here, I think Carl says that it's essentially trying to target more of the hip and knee musculature compared to the ankle. Yep. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're going to have them in a squat or a split squat, depending on what you, on what you want to do. Uh, and then the key is, and we, we, you know, you see this quoted quite a lot on, often on Twitter, but I don't think that people fully understand perhaps what they're talking about, which is, you know, there's, there's some key pieces of research that have shown that the athletes that perform the best, the ones who can relax the fastest. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily about producing maximal force or even about rate of force development. It's about how rapidly they can you know, get a muscle to, to go from excitation to relaxation and how quickly they can turn that on and off, which is where the rain trimetric stuff comes in. You're trying to get that rapid um, on-off effect, but you're not, the ankle complex is not the rate limiter here. So that's not limiting what can be, the work that can be done. So by taking the ankle out of it, you're then able to, to get, you know, the, the hip and knee musculature to switch on and off very, very rapidly which is obviously great if you're training MMA fighters who don't have good uh, ground contact qualities because, again, they're unshod, they train on soft mats, so most of their regular training doesn't benefit someone with uh, you know, that, that, that type of, of, of um, ankle structure. They're not relying on that stretch mechanism. So, you know, it's, it's, for them it works super well is what I found. And then just, just while you're on that quickly, um, do you mind just – Voicing your opinions, and I know I've actually heard you mention this before, but we've we touched on the players. Um, the other thing we you often see within kind of MMA athletes, um, coaches making them sprint. Yes. Can, yeah. So kind of getting into that one for me. Uh, yeah. So I'm a big believer in in if you want to be good at what you 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 know your primary task, you're best off practicing your primary task. Um, I know of situations where uh, I've had fighters who, who, who switch camps and gone to other trainers and, and they've been told to, to go sprint. Uh, we've had hamstring issues. We've had um, fighters come out worse for it um, because don't get me wrong. Sprinting is a great, let's argue that sprinting is a, probably a better for fighters. It's a better GPP activity than it is a sports preparatory activity because maximal sprinting is greedy and you're trying to get guys to be better fighters. They're playing, training in multiple disciplines, trying to master multiple domains. And then you're adding a stressor like near maximal sprinting on top of that. And you're expecting a positive outcome. You know, you're, you're, you're you know, playing a game of buckaroo here with, uh, you know, uh, with the fighters physical qualities. And, um, you know, all it takes is, is some, some maximal sprinting to, to you know, because a lot of these times again, because they're used to being unshod when they quite often 
uh, wrestle and grapple. They'll spin on the they'll spin they'll spin to the inside of the foot. So they'll they'll spin on the big toe. They'll, turn, they'll externally rotate at the hip, um, which in wrestling is fine. You know, in sprinting perhaps not as good. And these guys have no sprint technical training, and you're wanting to then go maximal. It usually doesn't end very well. You know, and I've had one or two cases where guys have, have run sprints and, and pulled hammies, and it's like, well, in MMA, a pulled hammy is often not a common injury. You know, in, in the actual training, usually it's, um, you know, MSK, a knee or shoulder or something, some sort of soft tissue problem. A lot of the time, you know, they don't they don't pull hammies, you know, because they're not achieving high velocities. Um, and yeah, that was sort of, you know, not that I wanted to rub it in that particular athlete's face, but it was like, you know, I told you not to sprint, bro. You know, so uh, yeah, and that's that's entirely what happened. So, um, I'm you know again as a coordinative act- coordinative activity GPP. You want to run some sprints. You want to run some hills. You know, go for it. Sub max. Don't go too hard. Know your limits. You know, but fighters are fighters. They're competitive people. As soon as you get one or more lined up against each other and they're running flat sprints, I can guarantee you someone's going to get hurt. You know, so it's it's just respecting that a little bit, you know. But um, yeah, as, as a as a preparatory tool, you know, particularly during the SPP phase, I don't like. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I think you can call that with with your guy that pulled his hammy. It's a, a teaching moment. Yes, <laughs> or, or a learning yeah. moment. <laughs> um, just moving on now, because I know obviously you work a lot with golfers as well. Yep. H- how is that for you? Uh, I know you tr- you travel a lot on the like, the European tour. I know. There's a lot of different tours. I don't fully understand it. Um, so maybe you can explain that a little bit as well. But how sure. does that look? I think we talked a little bit kind of before we started recording the podcast that there's similarities that we see between tennis and golf. So we typically see a lot of BOSU balls, therabands and stuff like that. Um, how does that look when you travel? What, what are your experiences within that world? So um, I work across... Uh, three tours, um, you know, it, with the with the work I do with the ETPI, and then I work across um, numerous satellite tours with the work I do privately as well. Um, and uh, basically, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time on the Challenge Tour, which is a more developmental tour. Once you once you uh, do well in Challenge Tour, you move up to European Tour. And yeah, the, the culture of golf is one that's only now really just getting to grips with. Um, uh, strength and conditioning, let, let's call it conventional strength and conditioning, um, because they've had fitness training, let's call it that, for a long time. But I think part of the problem is that it's not been particularly uh, objective. So, um, and because it's not been objective, you know, they're very, very objective about the, the, the swing and about swing mechanics and about analyzing all that. But from a general preparatory point standpoint, very little objectivity, um, you know, but what we're seeing now because of the dominance of guys who hit it very far, that metrics like club head speed, full speed, distance are all uh, very, very important. So um, I'm just going to jump back to uh, screen share here. So um, what we've seen is, is you know, a change in players' uh, behaviours. Um, so, so this is part of someone's... Uh, so part of someone's PhD, so I've, I've not put too much detail um, in uh, this just yet. But so this, this is an observation that we did at a, at a major tournament. Um, total player number was about um, 150-odd. Um, and basically what we did is we, we 
old-fashioned notational observation. So we, what players came in the gym and what they did, and we noted down what they were doing. Um, you know, it still has a place. And um, basically, the behaviors we observed, at least half of them were doing some sort of, you know, some sort of mobility work. Some were doing some sort of band work. And then as, as we work our way down, um, you know, some were doing some, you know, low force, high velocity work. So throws or jumps, a few things like that. A few were doing some explosive work. And then in the absolute minority, uh, less than 10 out of a field of 150 did any sort of high force, low velocity strength work that week. And this was a major golf tournament, uh, one, of the, one of the big ones. So that tells you that either they're coming in and they've done all their strength work the week prior, or as a regular activity, it's something they're just not engaging with. And um, it's getting better. Uh, the culture is changing. And we're doing a lot of work trying to educate them um, as to this. So the third part of the, the, the job of the, the UTPI is education. So we're educating these guys, um, you know, as, as to, to good practice, as to what they should be doing, you know, that, that, that type of thing. So what we've done is uh, my two colleagues, um, Simon Riley and Dan Coffin, basically outlined what we have is like a py pyramid of probability of impact of S and C in golf. And, um, you know, at the bottom, we've got highest probability of impact, and, and that's uh, long-term injury and illness avoidance. So just by getting stronger, you're more robust. You know, in golf, 80% uh, of injuries are overuse. Um, and we know that we can prevent overuse injuries by about 50% if we do regular strength training. So we know that by just doing regular strength training, you get a nice cumulative impact on performance because you're more, you can practice more, and because you can practice more, you can get better your technical stuff. So there is a very small transfer to technical ability. Moderately, you know, related to strength and conditioning is, is the ability to improve club head speed. So if the guys can swing the ball, swing the club faster, they can hit the ball further. You know, the ball further, win more money. So if you're hitting it over 300 yards regularly, you're more likely to make more money. So it's an issue, and that's how one of the ways to sell S and C to these guys is that if you do S and C, you have the potential to potentially earn more, and that's a good way to get by. You know, because the bottom line is, you know, you, you know, we know there's relationships between long hitting and prize money. So you know, you you sell it to them that. Way. So I'm not going to dig at anyone specifically, but if we look at what let's let's call it golf fitness. And um, this is like the inverse pyramid, uh, so to speak. So the way, when I came into golf, I sort of, you know, observed the lie of the land, let's put it that way. And basically what I seem to be seeing from all of these fitness trainers is they thought that the highest probability of impact came from uh, transfer to technical ability through swim mimicry, uh, through golf-specific exercises and golf uh, swing replication. So every time they go into the gym, everything looks like it's golfy. That's for lack of a better term, <laughs> you know, everything looks golfish. Um, and basically I want to improve my swing by performing replication in the gym of golf like stuff. And then the mistaken idea that club head speed changes will come from improving stability will come from improving mobility. So, you know, and flexibility, you know, the, I decided that, that, I need more separation in order to, you know, between my torso and my hips to create the speed I'm looking for. If anything, you know, while mobility is important, quite often if you're playing on a major, you know, playing at a major tournament, um, you know, you're, you're on the European tour, you're on the challenge tour, you're probably mobile enough to play great golf, you know. So perhaps worrying about your mobility 
unless there's an acute issue, it's probably not going to help you because you've made it this far, right? Um, you know, and then the smallest probability of an impact quite often these guys seem to think that improving robustness via gross force production and structural changes isn't the way to do it because golf is a finesse sport. Lifting heavy weights will make me stiff, it'll affect my swing. And, and a lot of this, you know, anytime the, the European Tour account shares one of the golfers lifting, look at the comment section and you'll see so many guys going, this will ruin their back, this will ruin their career, this will make them stiff, they won't be able to swing it anymore. So golf um, at large, the culture hasn't bought into strength training. Um, particularly among particularly my amateur and recreational athletes. The most controversial thing you can do as a European tour professional right now is post a video of you lifting weights, heavy weights at that. You know, you will catch so much crap on social media you wouldn't believe. So, you know, for instance, I posted a video of some work I did with um, you know, Andrew Johnston is quite a well-known player, Beef is, 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 as he's known. And you know, fortunately fortunately I have very few followers, so no one said anything. The same video got posted by the European tour. The comment section was full of, 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 of some quite hurtful stuff in some cases, you know, and, and it, the golf culture is very odd. And because I'm an outsider, this all seems very strange to me, Pay, you know, discouraging people from trying to be better at their sport. You know, it's such a strange phenomenon. If it were a football player, you know, American football player or, or wrestler or whatever, posting themselves hoofing around some weights, everyone's like, yeah, oh, that's wicked. That's awesome. You know, and, and then to come into this culture where people denigrate that behavior, it's like, you know, that's why the prize money argument is such a good one because you can always break that out and say, look, you can make more money. They, they're stronger. They can hit it further, you know, because it's an easy argument. Do you and sometimes moment, have to take a step back in that situation just with, like, not necessarily with the comments and things like that, but if you're hearing coaches on the tour and stuff say these things that you just mentioned? Well, it depends. You know, we, we try and educate them. That's, mm -hmm. You know, that's the best we can do and keep putting out information, keep putting out positive modeling you know and, and putting out examples of success you know in the moment for instance um bryson dechambeau has been posting videos of him uh he's gained like 20 pounds 30 pounds over the winter season and he's gotten a lot stronger uh, his club head speeds uh, you know gained about 20 miles per hour or something stupid like that which is ridiculous maybe maybe slightly less than that i might be exaggerating but um again you know until he goes out and plays and wins some tournaments you know, people aren't satisfied that, that that's going to make any difference. So hopefully once the season restarts, uh, he'll win some tournaments and that'll, that'll, you know, quiet some of the naysayers. So, you know, um, and, and that's kind of the thing as well, you know, because you have to remember that at the end of the day, golf still has a lot of phenomenology. There's so much that's more than just the player. Where does the ball, where does the ball land? You know, you know, what potential hazards are they dealing with? What are the conditions like? Is it raining? Is it windy? There's there's so much other stuff that goes into it, you know. Um, you know, rather than just you know, being able to sit, hit the ball long. Yes, that's important, but that's not the only factor, you know. So so there's a lot that goes into that stuff. So then uh, you mentioned club head speed there for a second. Sure. So I mean, it might it might be on the next slide. I'm not sure. I was just yeah. going to say, what what's the type of things that you are you are assessing? Just so we're not guessing about the whole process. Yeah. Like, what are you? Yeah. What feedback are you giving to players to say, look, this is the stuff that, like, these are the key performance indicators. This is how we're getting better. So, golf is not short of assessments. So, the first thing you'll hear when you pe when people walk into the golf domain is they usually talk about um, FMS or movement screens uh, being important for golf performance. It's something that's really embedded itself into the culture. 
And a lot of these guys, you know, buy into the idea that the movement is the most important thing. And my key point was, well, you guys are all really great movers. I don't understand what the issue is here. Why are you so obsessed with screening movement all the time? What about, you know, the raw physical characteristics? So at the ETPR, what we've, what we've done is we basically, um, we assess for, for two raw physical attributes that, that any strength coach would look for in just about any athlete, you know, and um, it's just having some sort of objective physical testing. So we went really, really simple. Um, what, what we've introduced is, is using the isometric mid-thigh pull, which is a classic maximum force strength test, um, and counter movement jump impulse. So we'll, we'll, test, we'll test those two things. Um, so here's a, here's a European Tour and Challenge Tour, tour player. And, you know, obviously he's giving it the big end on the, uh, the mid-thigh pull as, as, you, as you do. But <laughs> we'll post stuff like this and people will be like, what the heck is this? We've never, ever seen this before. You know, and it's because um, we're all physical testing, such a novelty for these guys. You know, and, and you know, from that, we know that, that there was a great study done on challenge tour players showing a strong relationship between counter movement, jump impulse, mid-thigh pull and club head speed. And that's research, you know, the, the tour has done. Um, the paper's out there uh, by, by Jack Wells, who's a, who's a research, uh, researcher who's connected to the tour and connected to England golf, and, and he continues to do great research. And, you know, you know, we had a hunch that these things would probably be related, and guess what? They wound up being related. So we know that by improving, you know, raw force-producing characteristics, we then see an improvement in club head speed and ball speed. And... Um, the upper limit on that, that, you know, I was saying uh, to somebody else that, I, you know, I don't think we're, we're, get, we're only just starting to get there. But that point of diminishing returns where putting a lot of effort in trying to improve club head speed sort of starts to peter out. And basically, just by getting fighters, not fighters, sorry, golfers generally stronger, we see continued improvement in club head speed and ball speed. Um, and it's not pretty, but it means you're going to have to lift some heavy weight at some point, you know, to, in order to, to improve those things. Things like body mass, you know, do influence the outcome. The ability to separate well do influence that. But, but, you know, the most consistent improvement we see is just by getting stronger. We see an improvement in, in club head speed. And, and, you know, what we offer in tour is basically testing mid-thigh pull, count movement, jumping folks. And then we stratify that. We compare them to other players because they're intra-competitive. So we'll say, look, well, this is what the upper, upper percentile have as a mid-thigh pull. This is where you are quite often they'll go ah i need to work on that you know or another good way of applying it is if we've got a guy who's doing some iffy training we pull them in and go do you want to do some mid-thigh pull testing we test them and go well your mid-thigh pull numbers aren't very good what strength training are you doing at the moment you know and then that way you start to 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 build that relationship and 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 get them to, to buy into what you're doing um and that's can you compare that data to i know you said that it did correlate quite strongly Mm -hmm. um, but can you compare that to say, oh, look, this is player X. He's winning these competitions. Are you, are you able to do that to them? or No, so we try, we, we, we do, uh, sometimes they'll ask, um, yeah. but we do try and keep it more, more anonymous. But we, you know, having guys like um, Bryson DeChambeau and um, Brooks Kepka, who, who like, they, they tell everyone their club head speeds. They put up social media videos of, of that stuff. And we can say, well, this is what these guys are getting. Um, this is what you're getting. For you to go from A to B, one suggestion we make is that maybe, you know, I never, I never guarantee anything. That's important. I don't say it will improve your club head speed. I always tell them it might improve their club head speed because 
you know, there's, there's a ton of other confounding factors as well. But, um, you know, I tell them it's probably one of the best ways to try and try and achieve that outcome. You know, so we, we're very careful with what we tell people, mm-hmm. you know, um, because, again, this is a population that's very sensitive to, uh, you know, the language has always been geared around um, injury prevention over performance enhancement. And we're just trying to get them to buy, buy into that. So, you know, that's key where, you know, I've been trying to intentionally kick up a bit of a fuss by posting videos of, um, you know, uh, different athletes doing different things. So um, the key fundamental of what we do is, you know, you know, high force, multiple modes of modes of contraction. So when I post videos of golfers doing super maximal squats, so this is this is Miles Collins here on the left. Um, he's been working with me for a long time. He's got a club head speed of about 136 miles per hour, which is considered very fast, um, considering the highest guys on tour have about 125. So when I go, well, this guy swings at 136 miles per hour. Here he is doing a super maximal hand supported squat. What do you think of that? And then people lose their minds for a little bit, but it just creates, it gets people thinking, you know? And then the other thing they're terrified of is bodybuilding. So um, here's another athlete, a European tour player doing some bicep curls, you know, because we know that body mass correlates well to club head, club head speed, you know, and most strength coaches will turn around and go, well, of course, strength training, of course, hypertrophy. That's, and, and like, yes, I know you guys get it. We all get it because that's what we do. But golfers don't get it. So I'm repeatedly, you know, hitting them over the head with the mallet saying, you know, get stronger, get bigger, get stronger, get bigger. Um, because it's completely unutilized. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the key thing. And that's why I enjoy working in golf is because the bread and butter stuff uh, still needs to be sold to them. And, and because no one's selling it to them, that gives me an opportunity to, to try and push that stuff, you know. So when other people are getting sort of, you know, working talking i see a lot of talk particularly high in sprinting complex models modeling stuff like that and and i'm like i'm just trying to get golfers to, to lift weights and, and, <laughs> and you know be be okay with it you know and um yeah it's 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 funny because different sports are in such such different places you know so it sounds like um, we're, we're fighting the same battle to be honest because i'm just trying to get tennis players into the weight room <laughs> yeah so here's miles doing a super maximal isometric uh so you know Again, post a video like that and say, this is a goal for doing X. And people are like, what the heck are you doing? You know, and it's like, well, you know, there's a reason why he has the longest drive on the Euro Pro Tour, which is a satellite tour, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and um, it, it, things like that, people can't argue with, you know, as like, well, you know, here's what he's doing. This is what he's achieving, you know, get on board or, or get left behind, you know, um, and that's kind of the, the, the message that we've been, been putting out there so um there we go so um the other thing we put a lot of time into that i've been working on now once they get strong enough i start worrying more about separation um and ballistics and um one thing i've taken enormously because I've, i looked took a good look at all the core training a lot of guys were doing and a lot of the paloff presses and a lot of them were doing cable chops and stuff like this and i'm like well I don't mind that kind of core training, but it seems to exclude something is the fact that your connection to the ground and particularly what the hip is doing is super important. Now, hopefully one day you might have him on. But Vernon Griffiths posted a, a, a little while back. Of, of, it was in the movement on the, on, on the left here, um, the lateral swing and med ball throws. And he posted a movement similar to that. And then I think he posted something similar to the one on the right with uh, a player with a kettlebell. So, um, I started including more lateral swing work, and what I found very useful for was guys, hey, 
understanding the connection between the torso and the hip and the floor. Because you go to ever perform this movement, the first thing you see is the right, the big toe on the foot on the floor on the round side to, to switch because you're trying to find stability through the floor. The next thing is you feel it in your glutes because um, you're you're trying to stabilize the hel pelvis as you rotate in the opposite direction. Um, and uh, sorry, can you just can you just repeat that a little bit? I heard big toe. I think we, it just kind of buffered a little bit there. Can you just just buffered a little bit? Yeah, sure, no like problem. Big big toe on glutes, I think. Yeah, so what you're seeing is basically um, that supporting leg, the ones the ones on the floor. Um, you're finding the floor with the big toe, and then as you're rotating, uh, you know, uh, as you're rotating in towards the leg, you're suddenly feeling your glute an awful lot because you're obviously you're trying to keep your hips under control. And suddenly, a lot of the guys were finding a really big connection between getting their their glute doing what they wanted in the golf swing and separating their their, their hips from their shoulders. And they found this, you know, and again, I've got no evidence to prove it, but all the guys started saying, this feels really good. And then when I go and hit balls, I'm feeling my connection to the floor. And, um, you know, I could EMG these guys. I could probably do it at some point, you know, in the near future and see if there's anything interesting going on. But the ground feel that these guys were getting with the connection to the, to the separation was, you know, A, um, Goldfish, which appeals to their sensibilities, <laughs> and, and but B, doing a lot of things I wanted it to do. So we're not just focusing on just separation because you know what, um, you know, uh, uh, let's say a golf fitness person would do is they would whack us, uh, uh, you know, a BOSU ball under that. And it's like that's that's you're not going to find any force production there. We need to keep the ground stable, you need to find it and use it. And, and that's what we started doing. So, um, uh, I'll just play this one. Here. So you can see, um, as Luke is another guy who swings at uh, over 130 miles per hour. Um, so you can, if you look at occasionally his, his his toe will lift. I don't know if it's particularly clear, but yeah, um, it's good. Yeah, yeah. So he's kind of kind of finding the floor with that, um, and then we'll pair that. We'll do sort of because because that's that's quite a slow movement, quite controlled. We'll then pair that with some ballistics and use it as like a contrast uh, type set. And we'll quite often do this as, as a warm up as well before they go out to play. Um, and a lot of them find it very, very useful. It really helps them connect to the ground from, from toe to separation. So they, they really like that. And then um, this next video over, um, I think I filmed some of this in Dubai, but um, a few different variations. I'll just turn the music off. Um, so again, same idea, uh, slightly higher load, focusing on that separation of shoulder and hip. And again, a lot of the guys, the first thing they say is they feel this in their glutes. Um, there's Luke again doing another variation, swinging in and out of the movement. And again, you can kind of see him shake, the hip shake a little bit, because he's, he's, he's um, trying to keep that stability in the, in the movement. Um, and there's me, uh, who can't separate. I don't know how, how that's coming up <laughs> on yours, but um, yeah. It's jumpy, I'm not but you as good at it as they are. <laughs> you can get the you get the idea, yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, I'm not as good at it, but uh, but you get the idea. You know, that separation, and the whole time I'm doing that, my groups are screaming. So, you know, despite the fact that it's you know I'm keep maintaining a quasi isometric position, um, you know, through the floor, and and I'm really feeling the glute as I separate the shoulders from my hips. So, 
you know, and that's that connection to the ground, that using the glute as you, as you, as you generate separation is, is super important because you can separate really well, but if you can't use the floor, that's not worth anything. So that's kind of, kind of what we're looking at. And then, um, you know, we started implying more sort of conventional. So um, this video here is sort of more conventional. So strength training, so this is integration. It's another, another um, uh, Euro player, this guy. Um, so, so just, you know, some isometrics, some reverse banded squats, so just conventional strength training methods, really. Um, you know, nothing that, that no one's ever seen but in golf. This is such a novelty. You know, um, no one's ever really done this type of thing. Um, and just getting this population used to sort of more athletic-oriented training. We do a lot of ballistics, a lot of jumping. So uh, I'm big on box jumps. I'm big on loaded jumps. Um, uh, even French contrast. So we'll do band-assisted work. Um, so squat jumps as well is another another big favorite. Um, I think that's it for that video. And then um, trying to teach the guys that, that um, you know, when it comes to correspondence to swing speed, which is something we've been working on, is that, you know, you build the big, big, big blocks first, focus on, on strength, and then you can start to implement clever, you know, you know well uh, time, well implemented ballistics. And the way that, that was, you know, um, sort of throw intent, uh, from least specific to most specific. Um, and we'll have guys that, so, you know, work on their vertical force enhancement, we work on their ballistics, and then last part, that part on the far right is, is intent, and we find the biggest thing with improving club head speed is we get the guys to actually try and swing as fast as they can. No surprise, that helps them swing faster, you know, and again, it sounds, it sounds trite, you know, people are like, that's stupid, as I will, you know, it might seem silly, but it actually helps. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll set, we've got some speed sticks in the gym and we'll set up the swing radar, which gives us a readout in miles per hour. And we'll get them just, just so as part of say a complex or contrast type work, med ball throws and swings. You know, again, they're not trying to be, we're not trying to replicate technique here. They're just trying to swing as hard as they can, you know, and they're not hitting a ball either. So by, by training that intent, you know, then when it comes to, to, so if you can swing 135 miles per hour, you know, I'm not asking you to replicate that on the tee. What I'm saying is if you can swing 135 miles per hour, you should be able to breeze 125 under, under regular conditions, you know, and that's that, that type of feeling, it's, you know, because people are like, well, do they need to be able to swing 140 miles per hour? I was like, well, no, they don't need to be able to swing 140 miles per hour. What I want is them to have the capacity to swing 140 miles per hour so that when they hit in their regular shots, they can pull off a 120 mile per hour, 125 mile per hour shot with, with, with little effort. You know, that's a, that's a, you know, going from 100% to a 90% effort, you know, and it's that, that, that type of thinking is, is what I'm trying to encourage. Would you say that's just trying to, it's trying to raise the ceiling essentially. And you're Absolutely. almost by the sounds of it, that speed stick is almost like an overspeed trained effect when you compare it to the golf club. Yeah, so we use a we I, I we use a lightened stick, so we'll we'll get them, and we'll get them to swing that as, as as fast as they can. So, you know, and this is the you know tying the whole approach together is that that general preparatory, the heavy strength training, you know, the ballistics, the jumping, that raises the floor, and then, you know, that whole raising the ceiling element comes from sort of intense specific work. I'm not giving them golfish exercises to do. I'm giving them an overspeed golf movement to do. Um, 
and and by doing that we're trying to raise that that, that ceiling and I think part of the problem is in, in golf and maybe maybe the same in tennis is everyone pours all their effort into the specific stuff mm -hmm. and and you know yes you can raise the ceiling but the room for improvement there is marginal you know and that's why when when we program the sort of intent-based stuff we'll do it for maybe four to six weeks and then stop for a while because that bucket fills very very rapidly you know and and so it's all the case of like keep focusing on raising the floor and then then focus on the specifics you know occasionally because that that tops out so fast yeah 100 percent. i think like like you mentioned there with tennis it's all at the end of the day it's down to you see a lot of like simulation instead of stimulation that's that's the big thing you, you never see anyone producing force in the weight room mm -hmm. or anything like that really well especially when you travel on the tour a lot of the weight rooms are <laughs> well as yeah. i imagine it's probably pretty similar you you've got to travel a bit of a distance potentially away from the facility to find a good weight room yeah you you end up becoming very adaptable um i've, I've, I've programmed some interesting hotel room workouts i've visited some good hotel gyms and some not so good hotel gyms um we had a situation uh last year on challenge tour where um we went to santa mare uh, in france and I was told there was a gym there. We got there, there wasn't a gym there. So luckily one of the physios was coming over. He'd loaded two kettlebells and a TRX in his car. And it was like, okay, that's our, that's our gym this week then. You know, so, you know, cause the nearest gym I think was 30 minutes away, you know, and, yeah. and um, it's the only thing, the only, the only positive to CrossFit, I guess, is the fact that now there are CrossFit boxes everywhere. You can always usually find one and they're always usually more than happy for you to pay a drop in fee. So. Yeah, you know sure. um that's 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 also very very useful but yes you become very adaptable and you know um uh, it was funny when this whole thing started people were like oh i'm not gonna have a gym to train and it's like well that's quite often my job week to week so you know it's uh programming for for, for you know you know less than you expected is is a is a skill set you rapidly develop working with a touring athlete you know so um yeah that's, that's, that's kind of important um, and do you, so do, with that, do you tell your guys to, to travel on tour with a, with a TRX or, or like with a heavy bands type stuff? Yeah, we, we give them a suggested, like I give them a suggested equipment list, um, you know, heavy bands, TRX, um, you know, and then the biggest thing we'll give them hopefully, you know, is competency to perform movements and make adaptations without having to, to message me or call me or whatever. They can, they, they can make the judgment on their own, but they have the competency to make the changes on the fly that they need. Um, you know, so they can use eccentrics, they can use ISOs, they can use heel elevated work. They can do make whatever changes they need to make to make the exercise more difficult or, or whatever, you know, if they have to adjust on, on the fly. Um, so yeah, bands are awfully useful. You know, um, uh, TRX is one thing uh top of my head i can't really think of anything else you know bean bags can be useful if they want to do some ballistic stuff you know um but apart from that you know it's, it's a case of um just being adaptable uh and being ready to occasionally not have the best of training you know not the most optimum of training weeks you know but then when you get the opportunity um to chase it you go in on it you know so if you end up in a place that's got a great gym use that week you know make the most of that you know because Again, it's like, you know, like we were talking earlier, kicking that, that can of training residual down the road. So if you've got an opportunity to get in a heavy session, you take that opportunity to get in a heavy session, you know. 
uh, maybe even training on on um, competition days, and some guys will do that too. So they yeah. use the opportunity to train on com on competition days. Um, so yeah, so um, this last one, just linking back to what we were talking about, um, something I'm implementing with the guys who are now strong enough, because most golfers don't have a, a, a broad enough base of general strength that we can employ novel methods like second gen contrast training, which is what we've been doing with a few guys, which is basically a, a, a twist on contrast training, French contrast, if you're familiar with it. So what we do is we take the, we take the band accelerated movement and change it with an accelerated sports movement. So in this case, uh, you know, Miles here is doing a, a back squat, you know, moderate sort of heavy lift for a couple of reps. Um, Best hair in golf, this guy. Um, and, uh, you know, something simple, vertical jumps, kettlebell jumps, uh, whatever. Uh, next up, he'll do some sort of, um, that can be a plyo as well, depending on the sport. And then uh, then finishing up with a sport-specific skill, overspeed. That's what he's doing here is he's uh, swinging the club with maximum intent. Um, you can do that as a circuit or, or whatever. Um, I stole that from as a, a Joel Smith. Um, um, and just something we've been toying with um and like i said we don't really know uh, um what the transfer will be like it's something we're toying about with you know because you gotta remember these guys do hundreds of, of high velocity swings a week is doing more outside of you know just to try and improve intent gonna help you know um you know so we might see guys in the near future hopefully getting a 140 plus if i have my way so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have to see what happens in, in that regard. Uh -huh. When do you think that potentially tails off? Like, I know you mentioned it briefly earlier. Is getting to 150, you'd think you'd be able to still hit the ball, obviously over 400, uh, 300 yards, sorry. Um, does that become ever a limiting factor if we go, if we swing the ball too fast? I know there's a coordination, obviously, issue there. So, this uh, is, again, this is all unknown territory. So what was interesting is, uh, Brooks Kepka, no, sorry, uh, Bryson uh, DeChambeau posted uh, stats. It was either him or somebody else posted stats showing that his yardage got higher. Um, you know, he was hitting it further, more 300 yard plus uh, drives. Mm -hmm. um, but what happened was um, his uh, accuracy improved. So it kind oh, of quashed, right. his dispersal was lower. So, um, yeah, which flies against the argument against um, hitting it further. Um, so, again, because this is unknown territory and golf is now trying to take active steps to discourage distance, we don't know how they're doing it. The RNA came out with an announcement um, back in February, I think it was, or early March, saying they're going to look at reviewing the game and try and figure out how to make distance less of an important factor. Um, I don't know how they're planning on doing that. So that might have a big impact. I think it might make being able to swing fast even more important. So let's let's say they improve the they increase the density of the balls. You know, hitting it far is still going to be important. Yeah. You know, so I don't know how they unless they plan on attaching tiny parachutes to the to the club or <laughs> or, or wading clubs or, or whatever they plan on doing. I'm not sure what changes um, you know they're going to make. They might limit the head of the, the, the size of the head of the driver, for instance. That might mm -hmm. be a good way to do it because obviously with a smaller head. Um, you have to be more accurate, you know, so um, I don't know. It's, it's again, this is, this is all new ground. This whole chasing speed phenomena is only very, very recent. Yeah. 
Um, and we'll be curious to see what happens when guys like Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Koepka um, get back out and start playing again and how this affects play. So it'll be interesting times in the next year or two to see, see how this affects the sport of golf. But right now, the further you're hitting it, the more money you're making. And that's a relationship that's kind of hard to argue with. Pretty easy to sell, you'd think, as well. <laughs> you'd think so. You'd think so. But, um, you know, there's probably a point in diminishing returns. Um, you know, it's just I don't think we've we're there yet. Not yet. You know, there are long drive. There are long drive guys hitting at 150 plus. You know, um, obviously with those guys, specialists. But you know, there are elements we can borrow from that. Lessons we can learn from that, and then apply it to to, to regular golf. Perfect. Well, I know the time's getting on a little bit here, William. So I really do uh, appreciate your time. Just, just finally, just to close out here. Um, I've just got two questions that I try to ask uh, most guests that, that come on the show. Uh, do you have any advice for maybe young coaches that are just leaving university, trying to get out of the, trying to get into the field? Sorry. Yeah, um, my my biggest piece of advice is is um, because I came through a very non-conventional route. Um, you know, the idea that chasing badges is the key to being a good or a happy strength conditioning coach is is, is one that's flawed. Um, yes, I work for, for um, an organization now, but um, I haven't always. And, and I came through a route where I kind of just did things how I wanted to do things, um, you know, glamorous initially, having to work as a personal trainer, stuff like that, um, you know, but just, just sort of, you know, sticking to that ambition of opening your own facility, going that private route and just sort of working hard to, to get to that point. You know, you don't necessarily have to go for that, that underpaid, um, you know, academy job or whatever. You know, you, you know, you, you can, you know, do other things, save some money, get into a position where you're financially secure enough to then, you know, work privately. You know, if, if not, get in touch. There are lots of private coaches now. You know, that's, that's a definitely a viable route, you know. And I know some guys who've left, you know, well-paid jobs working for major teams. And they're much happier because of they've, they've, they've checked out, you know, because at the end of the day, uh, I'm in a position where I get to do what I want and train people how I like. And yeah, I have to check, you know, it's, it's more of a business and each athlete I have to treat as a customer. So, you know, there's a whole different dynamic to the whole thing. But I definitely think there's a case for, for you know, you don't necessarily have to, to, to play the game of, 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 you know, working for a badge, not at all, you know, um, yeah. Perfect. And then just finally, then, is there any books that you recommend? Yeah, so my recommendations are going to be, are going to be sort of one S&C book, and I recommend a couple of the, the aren't S&C. Uh, really enjoying um, Maladin Jovanovic's um, Strength Training Manual, Volumes 1 and 2. Um, partly because what I like about it is, is that he takes a um, narrative approach to strength and conditioning. So rather than it all being about the hard science, you know, um, which I don't particularly enjoy, you know, but uh, you know, rather than being about that stuff, um, it's about the narrative approach of strength and conditioning, that, that, that ultimately strength and conditioning is, is having one foot, you know, in order and one foot in chaos and trying to, to bring stresses onto somebody to try and improve them. And, and, you know, that stress requires a little bit of uncertainty. And, and just, it's just a very refreshing approach to strength and conditioning. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it, you know, um, you know, because you can come at people being super rational and, and, and giving them all the science, all this type of stuff. And the buy-in's not there, 
you know so people people like narratives they like stories and if you can approach selling them your your product in that fashion i think you might probably be more successful in that regard you know um and then then non-snc books anything by nassim taleb is particularly uh worth a read um anti-fragile and skin in the game are great books that have um completely changed my perspective on strength conditioning um you know it's become sort of a little bit trendy to bash taleb a little bit just recently you know because he can be a bit of a scamp on on twitter um you know but his books are, are really influenced my my practice you know from a risk probability standpoint things i'd never really really considered um and then the other the final one would be um a copy of, of marcus aurelius's meditations um you know because it's it's an interesting read i'm interested in stoic philosophy but the key thing is this is you read it and you're like this guy was emperor of one of the biggest empires you know most influential empires of all time and he's got the same damn problems i do so <laughs> you know i perhaps shouldn't feel so bad about my situation you know so um you know i found i find meditations really really interesting read I have to give that one a give that one a read when we get order that on Amazon tonight and, and get it in. Ah, it's, a, it's, it's a great book. Definitely. So I will I will do that. Um, look, once once again, thank you very much, William. Really really do appreciate you taking time out of your day to to come on and, and talk shop. No problem. I've I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. I'll be in touch.